Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 1. Then Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, these statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. It's kind of a cool process there just to note uh, these things are spoken in their hearing, that they may learn them and observe them. And actually that last bend there is literally the phrase to do. So what we see there is to hear the word, to learn the word, to observe the word, and to do the word. It's a process that we, that we go through. And verse 2 going on says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all those of us alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire. While I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up the mountain. Moses gathered the people Israel. He recounted their 40-year journey in the wilderness from Egypt to Sinai to Kadesh. He urged the people, as we saw last week in chapter 4, to obey God's law. And now he launches into 21 chapters of going over the law, of reminding the people of the covenant given to them by the Lord at Mount Sinai. But something to understand right off the bat as we begin here is this covenant is unique to all the covenants that God gave the people of Israel. This covenant is different. It's the only one which was conditional. It's the only conditional covenant. Every other covenant, and we've got to make sure we've got this in our hearts and our minds, we understand every other covenant that God gave to the people of Israel, to Abraham all the way back to him, and then all the way through David, and later to Jeremiah and others, every single covenant was unconditional. God said, I will do these things, not depending on what you do. However, this covenant... What we would call the Mosaic Covenant is conditioned on the people's response. It's the only conditional covenant. Look at verse 3 again. Moses says, The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all of those of us alive here today. That word covenant, you may recall, it's berith in the Hebrew. It means cutting. Cutting. And the perfect example of that draws us back to Genesis chapter 15 where the Lord told Abraham to take some certain animals and to cut them, literally cut them in half and lay the pieces on either side opposite each other. And this would be done in a covenant process between two people. If they were going to make a covenant about land or a covenant of some kind of promise, they would take an animal, sacrifice it, divide it in half, and lay the halves opposite each other. And then they walked through those halves together, signaling, basically, that this is what's going to happen to you if you don't keep covenant with me. So covenant means cutting. And literally, when God came to Abraham again in Genesis chapter 15, and Abraham fell asleep, God had him lay out those pieces And God passed through the pieces. Abraham never did. It was a one-sided covenant. God said, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And I'm going to bless all the peoples of the world through you. And I'm going to give you this land. And when God did that, it was a one-sided, unconditional covenant. And all the covenants of God, up to this time, up to the Mosaic Law, up to this covenant were unconditional. There will be covenants afterwards who were, that were also unconditional. David received the covenant of the kingdom. When the Lord promised, David, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. A kingdom that will last forever. A promise by the Lord. Not conditioned on what David did, thankfully. <laughs> because if it was, we'd be in trouble. There would not be a kingdom following because David obviously didn't do his best, didn't keep his part all the way through. Jeremiah would later speak of the new covenant. And even that is an unconditional covenant from the Lord. Only the Mosaic covenant, specifically between Israel and the Lord, was conditioned upon Israel's ability to keep His law. And you know history, they were unable to keep His law. And therefore, because they failed in their part of the covenant, we see all the things, the tragedies that befell the Jewish people across time. Even the the diaspora, the dispersion into all the nations of the lands of the world and you might say well yeah but Rick but they're back in the land right now aren't they? exactly because God's precious covenants are unconditional this one was conditional but there were previous covenants the Abrahamic covenant the land covenant that were unconditional and God has kept those covenants now you might say okay well if this covenant is so specific to Israel as Moses says he did not make this with our fathers just with us if it's so much for them, why take the time even to study it ourselves? Why should we you know, dig into Deuteronomy and study and understand these things? Paul answers this. He says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. 
It says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even when we have, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since the works of the law, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So the logical question is, if by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified, why give the law at all? Why did God give the law? If the law could not justify, if keeping the law, if it was impossible for us to do that. Well, Paul answers that question. Galatians 3.19 Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. And that sounds awful hocus pocus and, and mystical. Let me read it again. The law was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. The law was temporary, but its purpose, its primary purpose, was to reveal our need for the seed. To reveal our need for the seed. The law was given until the seed came at the promise at the right time. Our need for the seed. Genesis 3.19 Going all the way back to the beginning, God said, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, to Satan, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. It's what we've talked about before, the proto-evangelicum, the first mention of the gospel in the scriptures, that a seed of woman would be born and would crush Satan. And women don't have seeds, women have eggs. This is a miracle being talked about even early on in the scriptures. The first sign of the gospel. The law then was added until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. In other words, the law was given to Israel until Messiah came to Israel. And we know he did in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So listen and understand the purpose of the law. And the reason we study these things, and you're going to notice real quickly, we're right back into the Ten Commandments here in Deuteronomy chapter 5. The reason we study and understand and seek to know the law is not so that it will save us. It's because the law is the tutor that leads us to Christ. The law brings us to Jesus. Paul says, now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor, but the law was that tutor that leads us to Jesus. And the purpose of the law for all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, is to reveal our need for the seed who is Jesus Christ. But there's a secondary purpose to the law. For you and for me, verse 6 reading on says, God now speaking on the mountain to Moses and he's recounting this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now you notice, and it's the same thing back in Exodus 20. When the Ten Commandments are given, at the beginning, at the outset of the First Commandment, God says this. And Moses repeats them again here. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And that's exactly what the Lord has done for us. He has brought us out from the house of slavery. Romans 8.2 tells us the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, the context of the commandments is freedom. The basis, the underlying foundation of the Ten Commandments is freedom. It's liberty. These laws were not given to bind up, but to give freedom and liberty into our lives. James says in James 1.25, One who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. That's why we study these commandments. That's why we look at the Ten Commandments, because they can liberate you. They can't save you, but they can liberate you. And literally, we studied through these back a year ago. Went through each one of the Ten Commandments as we were in the book of Exodus. And as we studied through these, we saw very clearly they are liberating. They are about freedom. And the keeping of these commands are not kept by us to try and be more righteous, to try and look more holy. But I guarantee you, the more we can stick to and keep these commandments in our lives, the more liberty we will free. 
and we will feel and the, and the more free we will be. And John says in 1 John 5.3 This is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Unlike what the world would tell you the law and command all that stuff that's, that's a heavy weight. Not so. The commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. Now Moses recounts the Ten Commandments which again we studied back in 2005 and that entire series if you didn't get a chance to go through that I'd encourage you to and you can get that on CD. They're available to you. But verse 7 going on the first of the Ten Commands You shall have no other gods before me. And this first commandment to my mind is the most liberating of them all. Flipping your Bibles over to Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46. The Lord lays the foundation for these Ten Commandments, saying, There is no other God. You shall have no other God before me. Listen to what the Lord declares in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 1. Bel has bowed down. Nebo stoops over. By the way, Bel means power and Nebo means wisdom. So reading it that way, power has bowed down. Wisdom stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. He's talking about idols here and he says, The things that you carry are burdensome. A load for the weary beast. They stooped over. They have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth, and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age I will be the same. And even to your graying years I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. To whom would you liken me, God says, and make me equal and compare me, that we would be alike. Well, those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and they bow down indeed they worship it and they lift it on the shoulder and they carry it and they set it in its place and it stands there but it does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Remember this and be assured. Recall to mind you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying my purpose will be established. And I will accomplish, accomplish all my good pleasure. The Lord makes it clear. That man I can strive and I can strain and I can try and bear up my idols. Or I can be borne up by the hands of the one true living God. And that's all idols do. They just become a heavy weight. We have to bear idols, he says, but he wants to bear us. You shall have no other gods before me. For there truly are no other gods that exist. And his purposes and his good pleasure, gang, it will be established. It will be accomplished. And I can chase after all other kinds of things to try and accomplish God's purposes in my life. But His purposes will be established. How much better just to yield to His plan and to walk in His will. Now, what's interesting to me about these Ten Commandments and going on with the rest of the nine is though they're all equally important as we, remi- as we read through these, two of them are given more emphasis. Two of them more is spoken about. And Moses elucidates. He goes into these things. You know, several of them he just shoots off like bullet points. But the second one, he says, and the fourth one he spends time with. In fact, the second one is basically in essence forget about idols and images. Forget about idols and images. And the fourth one of great importance, remember the Sabbath day. Forget about idols, remember the Sabbath day. First off, he says, You shall not make, verse 8, for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Forget about idols and images. Why? Because you can't represent the Creator. We just talked about this about a week ago. There's no image or artistry that can rightfully uh, portray God. He's too majestic. He's too beyond our understanding. And images always fall short 
miserably. I was uh, listening to John Corson the other day and he was talking about a trip he had taken to Austria. And talking about a town in Austria called Milstadt. Milstadt, which literally means millions, because historically what happened in that town was a missionary came to that place and there literally were millions of idols. And so what this missionary did was he began to cast these millions of idols into the lake there at Milstadt, which is kind of cool, one after the other, tossing all these millions of idols into the water. And if you go to Milstadt today, apparently there's a nice statue of this, mis- of this missionary casting idols into the water, which is ironic, isn't it? Along with that, what you'll find in the highly Catholic area of Milstadt and that section of Austria is you'll find crucifixes everywhere, all over the place. When God says, don't make any images, something else that we cannot effectively represent is Jesus on the cross. We can't, by our images and by our statues, effectively represent Him. What do you mean? As we've noted before, there is no physical description of Jesus anywhere in the Bible. You won't find one. Hair color, eye color, statue, stature, how He looked. We have no idea. God left it out completely. So we can't look at a description of Jesus and then craft something with actually three little exceptions. There are three places that I found that do talk about his form or his appearance. Isaiah 53, verse 2. He has no form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. In other words, there's really nothing about him physically that was, you know, winning. It's not that he was an ugly man, but he was just a guy in the crowd. Physically, Jesus would have been just one among the many. You might not even have noticed him walking by in the crowd if not for the word he spoke and the wonders that he performed. He was just an average Joshua hanging out in the crowd. Isaiah 52 verse 14 says, Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. We're told that he was so badly bruised and so badly beaten and so badly torn up that by the time they did hang him on the cross, he was unrecognizable. Marred beyond description. Marred more than any man. Have you seen people who have come out of horrifying car accidents? Have you seen people who have, who have been beaten about the face? Marred? Jesus was more so than anyone. How do you depict that on a crucifix? Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard and I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Idols and images gained their inadequate. Crucifixes and paintings and artwork and statues cannot and do not effectively portray the sufferings of Christ on the cross at Calvary. But not only are images inadequate, images are inaccurate because Jesus is not on the cross today. He's not still there. He rose from the dead. Just as he said, why does anyone want to keep him there? He doesn't belong on the cross. That is a conquered thing. So images are inadequate. They're inaccurate. And God said way back when, don't make any depictions of me. And by the way, don't even mess around with my name. Verse 11, he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. And out of respect for the Lord, you Bible students know that Orthodox Jews even refer to God as the name. When they write it down, they'll write G-D. They won't spell the name. To this very day, we say, is it Jehovah? Is it Yahweh? How do you pronounce it? We don't know because all we have are the consonants. Because the Jewish people, out of their great respect for God's name, pulled the vowels out. That it might be respected. God says, don't mess around with my name. And then we come to the next commandment, which is given quite a bit of emphasis here. Remember the Sabbath day. Forget about your idols and remember the Sabbath day. Verse 12, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do your work. But the seventh is a Sabbath of the Lord your God and in it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant, your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you Now keep in mind this was brand new in history. For the first time a culture took a day in seven as a day of rest. 
A consistent day where all work would cease. It was revolutionary to human thinking. But the Sabbath day, gang, has a peculiar relationship to Israel. In fact, it's been said that the Sabbath is the key to the maintenance of the identity of the Jews across time. That without the Sabbath day, they wouldn't have survived. One Jewish person put it this way, said the Jews have not kept the Sabbath. The Sabbath has kept the Jews. And has become so much a part of their very identity. Why? Listen, because the Sabbath is not only a reminder to rest, it is a reminder of redemption. And that one day in seven, every week, as they stopped to rest, something that they were called to do was to remember. Verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Why, Moses? Because you were redeemed. That's why you observe the Sabbath day. Now, this is new. Moses adds this. In Exodus 20, we don't have this insight. All we have to draw on out of Exodus 20 is remember the Sabbath day because in seven days God created the world and on the seventh day He rested. So remember that. But now Moses says to this next generation of Israelites before they go into the land, listen, remember the Sabbath day. Yes, God rested on the seventh, but it's more important to understand that He redeemed you. Remember you were a slave. Remember when you were in your slavery, you didn't have that day off. You were consistently bound to the work, but not anymore. And God gives this, you, you this day that you might remember, remember Remember his rest at creation and remember your rest from slavery because rest is redemption and redemption is rest. Isaiah 30 verse 15 says, Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. By the way, this commandment to remember the Sabbath is the only one of the ten which is not repeated in the New Testament. All the other nine are repeated by Jesus, by the other writers at different points in time in the New Testament. But remember the Sabbath day is not repeated as a command. Why? Because in Jesus we have our rest. Because Jesus is our Sabbath. Not only is He Lord of the Sabbath, but He is our Sabbath. He is our redemptive rest. He said, come to me. Matthew eleven twenty eight. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the Hebrew writer says, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. How do we enter into our rest? How do we stop striving? How do we stop working in this world? We enter into the peace which is Jesus Christ. He is our redemption. He is our rest. And so the principle of the Sabbath day, while it's still practical and wise for us, it's not part of our contract. Our rest was purchased by Jesus at the cross. Now verses 16 through 21 recount the rest of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be prolonged, that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor shall you desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Just for those of you who don't have a neighbor with an ox or a donkey, anything still applies here. And again, I want to allow you, if you want to study this more in depth and go through more teaching on this, uh, there's teaching available for you in that. I do want to point out one thing before we leave these Ten Commandments. Verse 20, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I've been thinking about this one lately. It's very interesting to me. You shall not bear false witness. And the more I think about this, the more I think we Christians are probably better at this than anybody else. We're pretty good at bearing false witness. Well, I don't mean on a witness stand. I don't mean that we stand up and we seek to destroy or undermine each other. But I do mean that it is so easy for us to shift and change what someone has said, what someone has spoken. You realize I can have a conversation with Aaron. He can tell me something and I can turn around and go to Jim and repeat it verbatim, word for word, and make it completely different. All I have to do is raise my eyebrow. And then Aaron said... Blah, 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 blah. Which is not what he said. Email is probably the worst of this. I know Les is scared to death of email because of this. But in email, we never know what people are saying. 
We never really know what the intention is, what the heart is behind what they're saying, so I would encourage you, as I'm beginning to learn myself, avoid emotionally charged things in email. Keep it cut and dried. Here are the directions to my house. If you want to know anything else, call me. But bearing false witness, gang, this is a dangerous place. We can roll our eyes repeating the exact same thing. And I have this actually even written in my Bible here. Bearing false witness is right information with wrong implication. Taking exactly what was said to me, but implying it differently. Voice inflection. Again, raising the eyebrows, rolling the eyes, laughing after saying it, whatever it is that we might do. And we think that we're really repeating exactly what was said to us when in fact... Nothing could be further from the truth. And we can use false witness to lead people down a wrong path. I'm guilty of that, gang. I seek forgiveness for that. But something else about all these commandments that I just want to note before moving on. Each of these, each one of these, these ten, according to Jesus, are surface expressions of deeper root issues. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 through 48. Jesus goes into this in depth. He says things like this. You have heard it said, don't murder. I say, watch your temper. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. And I say, don't even look at a woman with that look that you look at a woman with. Don't lust. Jesus sets the standard so far back from the actual commission of the sin so that we don't go there. Don't even go there. That would be probably Jesus, uh, you know, in a, in a nutshell, how he would express the Ten Commandments. Don't even go there. Don't even get to the place where you're on the line about to commit adultery. Man, don't even lust. Because sin, gang, takes root in the heart. And the failure to keep these ten laws reveal heart trouble. Reveals heart problems that we have. And the only way to deal with those heart problems, to deal with the root issue of sin, is to invite Jesus in. And I don't just mean giving your life to Him, calling Him your Lord and Savior. I mean inviting Him in moment by moment, day by day. I've got a struggle in my life. Jesus, I need you here to walk me through this. Let Jesus deal with the hard issues for John 8.36 tells us if the Son makes you free you will be free indeed verse 22 going on verse 22 tells us these are the words spoke that the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire of the cloud and of thick gloom with a great voice and I like this and he added no more he wrote them on two tablets of stone And he gave them to me. These are the things he said. He didn't add to them. The Ten Commandments, gang, stand alone. Even just these ten. Before God goes on into the rest of the law, before Moses recounts the rest of the law, the Ten Commandments are succinct, they're clear, they're practical for all people of all time. And you might say, well, Rick, I thought this was a covenant just with Israel. It was. It is. But the Ten Commandments, there's something unique about them. Rabbis teach that while God was speaking on the mountain, it's assumed, and there are reasons for this, that 70 languages were spoken at that time. That as God spoke these commands, they were spoken, all 10 of them, in 70 different languages. Why? Why do the rabbis teach that? And where does that come from? Because it's believed, even, even among rabbis, that the Ten Commandments are intended for all people of all time. The Mosaic Law is intended for Israel, the law that follows. But the Ten Commandments are a blanket statement of of Ten Commands that all people can live by, that can apply to all of our lives. And as we apply them, we find a freedom in them that is precious. We're going on verse 23. He says, uh, When you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and His greatness, and we have heard His voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet He lives. Now, then why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we will die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? So the people say to Moses, Go near and hear all that the Lord our God says. 
And then speak to us. All the Lord our God speaks to you. And then we will hear and do it. Moses says, The Lord heard the voice of your words where you, when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I've heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. I think that's interesting because I don't think I could have said it like that. I think my response to the people would be a little different. Moses here reminds the Israelites that they were awestruck before God. And remember, this is the next generation. This is 40 years later. So this generation, many of these people listening were children at the time. Some weren't even born. Part of the reason Moses recounts all of this in the book of Deuteronomy is because you have a new generation that needs to hear it from the mouth of Moses very clearly. But he's telling them what happened and what was experienced there. And in this we see something wonderful of the characteristic or the character of God and his nature. So first in verse 28 again he says, They've spoken well. Sounds good, Moses. Their hearts seem to be in the right place. And I would have said, yeah, right. Had I been God speaking to Moses at the time, and I heard what the people said, I said, I would have said, it's a nice try. You know, they're saying, have the Lord share the law and we'll do it. I don't think so. They're not going to keep my law. And God knew they weren't going to keep his law. And yet he still says, okay, they've spoken well. They've spoken well, Moses. Why is this? God knows they're going to blow it. In fact, there's imminent blowage about to happen. But God always gives the benefit of the doubt. And I think that is amazing about our Father. Something we could learn. God always gives the benefit of the doubt. He always says, All right, you want to give it your best shot? Great. I'm with you. He knows we're going to blow it. But He still says, I'm with you. I'm going to give you the shot. Even to the point of the throne judgment that's talked about in Revelation 20. Some have wondered why is it that God would resurrect those who died in sin, which is what the throne judgment talks about. Why would He resurrect them just to have a judgment? To give them the benefit of the doubt. So that there won't be a person in all of history who can't say they were not fairly judged. God will fairly judge everybody. If, if a person wants to be judged by their deeds, by their keeping of the law, by being a good person, God's going to say, okay, I'll give you a judgment on that. You can see if you're really a good person. That's the way you want to go. I would advise against it, personally. I think it's better to take the judgment on the cross. Better to take God's grace. But God always gives the benefit of the doubt. And in verse 29, then we hear a hint of compassionate sorrow as the Lord says the following. Watch this. Oh, that they had such a heart in them. That they would fear me and keep all my commandments always. That it may be well with them and with their sons forever. As much as God always gives the benefit of the doubt, God is painfully aware of our doubt. And so he says, I hear the people saying, tell the Lord to speak to you and we'll hear it and we'll do it. We'll do it. The Lord says, oh, I wish that they would have this in their heart all the time. It'd be so great. If they'd fear me, if they would really keep my commandments. But he knows they won't. And going on in verse 30, he says, go, say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me that I may speak to you all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I give them to possess. So you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. And I like this. He says, don't turn to the right. And don't turn to the left. Walk in the way of the Lord, for the right and the left are where we get hung up, gang. Even politically. Don't turn, don't put all your eggs in the basket of the right or the left. And you walk the way of the Lord. You do what the Lord says is right to do. I've been fascinated watching... uh, the news yesterday and today about uh, Joe Lieberman in Connecticut. I don't know if you've been following this. Joe Lieberman, for 18 years, has been in the Senate. He's been a Democratic representative from the state of Connecticut in the Senate. For 18 years, he's been serving these people. And he just, in this Democratic primary, lost the primary to a guy who people are saying is, is much more radical to the left, a very uh, liberal Democrat. 
And for all of his work and all of his efforts, Joe Lieberman lost. Why? Because he supported President Bush in the war. So he is lost. Now he's going to run as an independent. But it's, it's so fascinating listening to all the political pundits talking about it. You know, the, the conservative right talking about it going, oh, this shows you what the Democratic Party is really all about. And of course the Democrats, they're all standing with the new guy. And, and what's fascinating to me is the day of the primary, people like Hillary Clinton and, and, and other Democrats were behind Joe Lieberman. The day after the primary, where Lieberman loses, they're all completely behind Lamont, the guy who was against him. And you know what? That's politics. That's the way it is. Hey, that's where the votes went. That's where the party is. That's what you do. But you know what the Lord would say about all of it? Don't turn to the right or to the left. You walk in the way of the Lord. Now, if the way of the Lord happens to lead you to vote a certain way, that's great. But you walk in the way of the Lord. Gang, the right and the left speak of taking sides. Turning to the right, turning to the, to the left, that divides us. And God says, don't do that. Don't go one way or the other. Don't take sides. You walk the way of the Lord. The right and the left, and the left also indicate wandering, and that detours us. You know, you're on the path, and all of a sudden you see that little rabbit trail. You end up off somewhere else altogether. The Lord says, don't turn right. Don't turn left. You walk my way. Proverbs 4.25 says, Let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. And this is wonderful. God promises Israel that one day at the sound of their cry, in their distress, He will lead them in a way greater than the cloud, a way greater than the fire. He will speak directly and gently into their very ears. Isaiah 30 verse 19, he says, O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. And he who hear, when he hears it, he will answer you. Although the Lord has given you the bread of privation and the water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself. But your eyes will behold your teacher. Now listen to this. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right or to the left. In other words, the moment, Israel, you're about to step off the path, you're going to hear God go, <laughs> straight now, this is the way. Walk in it. And for us, gang, what's wonderful is we already have that voice. We already have that gentle voice that speaks to the right or to the left, speaks us back onto the path when we stray. 1 Corinthians 2.16 Paul says, Who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. If you're in Christ, you've got the mind of Christ. You have the Holy Spirit of Christ functioning within you who can lead you on the straight path when you're wandering off to the right or off to the left. Now going on, chapter 6, verse 1, says, This is the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged O oh, Israel you should listen and be careful to do it that it may be well with you and that you may multiply it greatly just as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey interesting milk is a staple honey is a luxury milk is a basic food and, and honey is a dessert type food and God offers both to the people of Israel he offers both to us milk it does a body good you need milk. It builds the bones. It builds the muscle. It's strength. And honey, honey is just all about sweetness. It's all about something sweet to the taste. Some people are strong, but they're not very sweet. Some people are sweet, but they have very little strength. Wouldn't it be nice to have both? Jesus was both strong and sweet. He was milk and honey. He had the muscle and the ability to stand. And he could be so sweet. This is the Lord who drove out the money changers in one minute and then bounced kids on his knee the next. 
This is the Lord who calls down the Pharisees and the religious stuff shirts. Man, He gives them what's for in one breath. And then in another breath we see Him weeping over Jerusalem. Milk and honey, strength and sweetness. And He invites us into that same place. He wants us to be in that place of being strong and sweet at the same time. And how do we get there? How do we go into a land that's flowing with milk, strength and honey, sweetness? How can we be that way? There's a milk and honey recipe. It's right here in chapter 6. It's a recitation, really. It's recited every morning and every evening by every serious Jew on the planet. It is, by the way, the first thing serious Jewish children will learn, even before they learn their alphabet. They will learn the Shema. The Shema, which means here. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Now I've got to point this out because it's so cool. The Hebrew for the word one there. One. What we would take as singular. The Lord is one. And we trip momentarily because we think, oh, wait a minute, what about the Trinity? Uh, the Lord was three in one. How can the Lord be one? He's declared as one here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. The word is echad. E-C-H-A-D if you're jotting it down. Echad in the Hebrew. And it doesn't mean one singular. It means literally a unity of oneness. A compound one. A plural form of one. To understand this, we can go back to the first mention of this word. And I've told you before, the best way to understand words is go back to the first time it's mentioned in Scripture. It's the principle of first mention. Because oftentimes, the first mention of a specific word or concept will define it for us in a way we can understand. So we go back to the first mention of the word one, akkad, in the Hebrew. And it's Genesis 2.24 that says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become akkad. One. Jim and Sandra are two, but they're one. Steve and LaDonna are two, but they're one. Cheryl and I are two, and yet we're one. Echad. That's what this word means. The Lord is our God. The Lord is a compound unity of one. He is a plurality of one. And this freaks the rabbis out. They don't know what to do with this. Listen to this, there's another time this is used, it's, it's referring to the, tent, uh, the curtains in the tabernacle, Exodus 26 verse 1, says you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains, ten of them, fine twisted linen of blue and purple and scarlet material, and you make them with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman, and five curtains shall be joined together to one another, and the other five curtains shall be joined to one another, and then he says, and you shall make fifty loops in the one curtain, Echad. There are five curtains. Yeah, but those five are one. It's a compound unity of one. Echad. That's what this word means. And it's very interesting to me because Moses comes along and he is the first one in a world of polytheism. Moses is the first one to stand up and introduce monotheism. Historically, that's what historians will tell you. We know this man, Moses, came along and, and part of the, the glory of Israel, the power of the Jewish faith, is that they had this monotheistic belief in one God. And yet, it's Moses who said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is Achad. <laughs> He's united in oneness. And this united in oneness, this compound oneness, does in fact speak of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. By the way, the word God here even speaks of it. The Lord is our God. It's not El, which is a singular God. It's not Elah, which means two. It's Elohim, which means literally three or more. Three or more. A God who is three or more. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amazing. We've come from, we've been created by Elohim. In fact, Genesis chapter 1, the word God, all the way through that is Elohim. It shifts over to Lord, Yahweh, in Genesis 2. But we were created by, understand, Elohim. We know in the very beginning that the Spirit was over the face of the waters. The Spirit was there at creation. Then in the beginning, God created. God was there in creation, the Father. We know from John, in John chapter 1, that in the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know Jesus was there in creation. Elohim. All three were present. That's where we've come from. But listen, this is where we're going. Zechariah 14. 
Zechariah 14 verse 8 says, In that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea, and it will be in summer as well as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, and His name one, Echad. His name will be one. So he is one, plurality of one, three in one. And continuing the Shema, we read, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Can you command someone to love you? I don't think you can. And yet that's exactly what God's doing. God in the Shema through Moses is commanding that the people love him. Jesus even said that. He said, hey, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. How can you do that, Lord? How can a person command love? Is it possible? Not if love is a noun. If love is a noun, if it is a word unto itself, if it's a mystical feeling, you can't command it. You cannot make it happen. I couldn't make Cheryl love me. I couldn't make her fall in love with me. If love is a noun, it's not something that can be commanded, but it can be commanded if it's not a noun. If it's a verb, which is how it's used throughout Scripture, if it's an action word, it can be commanded. We've got an incredibly, incredibly messed up view of love. And we lack it profoundly. Listen to this. I I was reading about the Hopi Indians... Hopi Indians who are in the, the regions of Arizona and New Mexico out in the heat and the desert and the dryness and anthropologists in talking with them and trying to understand the culture have discovered that the majority, the vast majority of their songs are about rain. They sing a lot about rain. Why? Because they don't have much of it. What are the vast majority of our songs about in American culture? Love. <laughs> because we don't have a firm grasp on it. We don't have much of it. We don't understand it real well. Love as a noun gang is something we cannot grasp. That feeling, I just want to feel it. But the feeling is not where it's discovered. It's why, by the way, the divorce rate remains so high, not just in the world, but among Christians. In fact, the difference between Christians in divorce and non-Christians in divorce, that's what? It's no different. It's no different whatsoever. Why is that? Because we do not understand that love is an action word. It's a behavior. It's a decision. And if we followed it as described in the Bible, the noun part, the feeling part, would follow later. How do we know love is action? Because God is love, and God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so here the command is to love God with heart and mind and strength, with all that we are, to act that love out for the Lord. To be obedient to Him. That's love. Not the feeling that you may or may not have during a worship service. And that feeling can be great when it's really there. But have you ever been in worship and you're just sitting there and you're going, man, it's just not connecting for me today. You ever been in Bible study where you're going, how much longer is he going to teach? It's just not connecting for me today. Gang, it's not about the feeling. It's about the action. Love me with your heart. Love me with your mind. And love me with all of your strength. And how we can act out this love, gang, it begins with the teaching of these very words. Verse 7 Moses says, You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Can you even imagine what our families would be like if we did that? How different our families would be. He says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. Wherever you go, whatever you do, teach this command. And the Israelites took this so seriously, by the way, that they made phylacteries. You know what a phylactery is? You may have heard the word. You'll see it in the New Testament mentioned a few times. It's a little box that has, for the most part, has the Shema written, rolled up in a little scripture, and tucked in the box, and it's strapped onto the forehead. Have you seen the Hasidic Jews today walking around with a box on their forehead? That's a phylactery. Or they'll tie the box on their wrist, and by the time Jesus came along, it was getting out of hand. It was getting ridiculous. People with big old honking UPS-sized boxes, you know, were turning off their heads because they thought, hey, look at this, 
Look at the size of my phylactery here. It's impressive scriptural righteous stuff. Look at me. And Jesus says, listen, he says, Matthew 23, 4, they tie up heavy burdens. <laughs> yeah. They lay them on men's shoulders. Talking of the Pharisees, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries, and they lengthen the tassels of their garments. The tassels had to do with their prayer life. The longer the tassel, the more they were praying. Righteous. The bigger the box. You have these guys walking around with big boxes and long tassels, and they look like idiots. And the Lord's saying, you missed the whole point. When I say to, to bind them as a sign on your hand and that they shall be as frontals on your forehead, He's saying, I want it in your mind. I want the Shema, your love for the Lord, to be in your mind. And I want it to be in your hands. That is, in what you're doing. I want you acting out your love for the Lord Jesus. How do I do that? In the way you love other people? I don't need to tie a box on my wrist. I need to lend a hand to a brother or sister who's hurting. That is following this command, this Shema. But for the Jews, it became about external spirituality instead of internal love. And God saying, man, I want this in your heart and on your mind and in your strength. The Shema. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God. Verse 9, he says, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so what do the Jews do? They came up with mezuzahs. Mezuzahs. If you go to Israel today, you'll see them on all the doorposts. They're like a little box that is screwed into the doorpost and tucked into the mezuzah is the Shema. Or for some, there are different scriptures that they'll put in there. But again, the vast majority will put the Shema in there. And as they're walking in the house, they'll kiss the mezuzah. And as they're walking out, they'll kiss the mezuzah and go on their way. Because it's their connection to what Moses commanded right here. But the idea of writing them on their doorposts and having them on their gates, it wasn't about little containers. It was about having the law, having the love of God all over your home. So that you can't walk in the door of your home without feeling or experiencing or offering out the love of God. When I was a kid, once a year music would play throughout our house. It started the day after Thanksgiving and it ran all the way through the end of the year. And you know what kind of music I'm talking about. I had Julie Andrew coming out of my brains by about mid-December. But I found in my life that I want the same thing. I went out and bought the Julie Andrews Christmas album a couple of years back just because I, it, it meant so much to me. It was that feeling. It was that sense of Christmas was here and all the music was playing. And Cheryl's taken to do, doing something. First it was a little annoying, but it's gotten really precious in our house. We have that Comcast cable and you can turn it on to the contemporary Christian music station and just let it play. And she really believes it's going to make Reggie a better dog when we go out of the house if we leave the Christian music on. I don't think so. But for the rest of us, I get up Sunday morning and that music's playing and worship is playing in our house. And I think, this is a good thing. Loving God, having the love of God before our children in our home. Is the love of God manifest in your home? Is it tangible? Is it visible? When someone walks in the door, do they sense that God's here? There's love in this place. Do they sense that, that drawing? That, that's what this is all about. Writing it on the hand, the forehead, the doorpost, and the gates of the house. It's, it's about having the love of God, hearing the Shema, speaking the Shema in your life, and your behavior, in your very home. Now going on quickly, verse 10, Then it shall come about, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which He swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities, which you did not build. And houses full of good things, which you did not fill. And hewn cisterns, which you did not dig. Vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant. You getting the point here, gang? You didn't do anything to get this stuff, Israel. And as you come into this land, you're going to have riches and wealth untold, and you did nothing for it. And he says, and when you eat and you're satisfied, then watch yourself. That you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and how often do we do that very thing we're going to spend some time on this one on Sunday God wants to bless us beyond all that we can ask or imagine but there's a a warning that comes with the blessing as God pours out blessing on us what do we do as human beings we forget where the blessing came from he says man I want to bless you I want to give you everything I can give you But watch yourselves as you begin to receive those blessings. Watch yourselves, he says. 
Take care that you don't forget the Lord in all of that blessing. He says in verse 13, You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him. Swear by His name. Jesus quotes that when He's being tempted by Satan. Verse 14, You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and He will wipe you off the face of the earth. And again, we spoke of this last week. God's jealousy and man's jealousy, two completely different things. Man's jealousy means the temporary satisfaction of the person who's jealous. God's jealousy means the eternal satisfaction of the beloved. God is jealous for you and for me because He knows that He wants to love us into eternity with Him. And it means blessings untold for us. When we get jealous, it's just because we're not getting what we want. We want what we want, regardless of what that means for the purpose person that we're jealous of. Now, verse 16. Moses says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. Massa meaning temptation. It was that place of whining and complaining. The people were literally fresh out of Egypt. A few days, maybe weeks out of Egypt, just having left the land. They were also fresh out of water, so they began to blame their liberating God for it. He saved them from Pharaoh. Ten plagues, magnificent, stunning plagues happened. And they got out of water and they started to blame God. They started to say, God, what are you doing? How can you let this happen to us? How can you draw us out into this wilderness and not provide for us? What kind of a God would we just want to go back to Egypt? And I hear that so often. Moses says, don't do that. Don't turn your complaints on the one who set you free. How many Christians have I heard blaming God for circumstances? Angry at God. In fact, we almost think it's cool. Well, I can shake my fist and be angry at God. He can take it. Yeah, He can take it. But why do you want to give it? This is the one who set you free. Don't blame Him for the circumstances. Don't take it out on Him. Don't turn your back on the one who has freed you. Verse 17, You should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to give your fathers by driving out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken. Now watch this. Verse 20, When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord your God commanded you? And why do you carry around that Bible? And how come every Sunday morning we have to get up and get dressed and get in the car and drive to that barn? It's hot in there, Dad. Mom, it gets cold in there in the wintertime. Why do we have to do that and sit on those chairs? Those uncomfortable chairs? Of course, that was spoken by people who didn't sit on the hay bales. (laughs) Why do we have to do this? I don't understand. Why do you sing those songs and lift up your hands? Why do you bow your head in prayer before every meal? Can't we just eat? And when your sons and your daughters ask you questions, the Lord says, Moses says, then you shall say to your son, we were slaves. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. And the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt. And Pharaoh and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in. I like that. Underline that. He brought us out to bring us in. To give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe these statutes. Why? Because he brought us out to bring us in. He commanded us to fear the Lord our God for our good. Always. And for our survival. As it is today. And it will be righteousness for us. If we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as He has commanded us. He says, son, daughter, listen up, pay attention. He brought me out to bring me in. And this is a precious word to pass along in our families. Let me ask you parents who your kids know your story. And I'm not just talking to parents of kids who are at home right now. Do your children, even grown children, know your story? Do they know the slavery that you were in? Do they know how the Lord brought you out so that He could bring you in? Have you sat down with them and told them your story? Do they know why you believe 
what evil do you Jacob you're not sure what your dad's story is maybe we should stop right here and all listen to Jim's story do your kids know have they heard what you believe I was in bondage but the Lord brought me out to bring me in does your family know your extended family know what the Lord has done for you have they heard your story or do they most often hear what the boss has done against you (laughs) does my spouse know my story has she heard me proclaiming the good that God is doing in my life or has she more often heard me proclaiming the bad that people have done do they know your story and you might say again my kids are long grown and gone listen it says the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago but the second best time to plant a tree is right now it's today so that it might grow and when they ask whether it's your kids or your family or your friends or whoever tell your story share your story talk about the Lord and share his commands he brought us out to bring us in and Father we thank you so much for your commandments and your statutes and your laws Father we don't intend to dive into these to keep them we know we're incapable in fact we know that the law was added that sin might be more visible and might increase but we study these things to be reminded of how you brought us out of how you rescued us from ourselves and brought us out of the land of slavery that we might be in a good land and that is in your presence in that land of milk and honey strength and the sweetness of Jesus Christ in our lives oh Lord thank you teach us to live by these things and to walk in your will in Jesus name we pray Amen.